Romans chapter 11, calling today's message, Who are God's elect? We will take a look at that. Turn to Romans 11, starting from verse 25 is where we're going to read. Please stand with me if you are able to, and we're going to start reading from Romans 11, verse 25 as we kick off this time. Romans 11, verse 25, it says, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the Deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, oh, again, we thank you for your holy word. Thank you, Lord, that your word stands forever. We thank you, Lord, that you do give prophecies all throughout the Bible. We thank you how Israel is your beloved. Israel, that's your chosen people. Help us to understand these things, Lord. Forgive us for false doctrine we may have learned. Forgive us for others and their fake agendas that really seem to come from Satan. Where others have turned away from Israel. Others have even gone to to kill them, even as we've seen, Lord. The things that have happened during the Holocaust and other horrific things that are still happening around the world right now against the Jews. This anti-Semitism, as we call it, Lord. We know that it didn't start here today. It didn't start, certainly, in America. It's been going for so long. But, Lord, help us to understand what you show us in your holy word. Help us us to see how we fit into your overall plan. But teach us your word. For we ask, we, we beg, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You guys could have a seat, if you would. And I'm going to drag over this whiteboard because I'm going to take a quick survey. And I'm going to open up by asking you here. You guys like pizza, right? Who likes pizza? I think my whole life I've met maybe one or two kids that don't like pizza. (laughs) Everybody loves pizza. So who here likes anchovies on their pizza? Who likes anchovies in their pizza? There's three. You always have at least, not too much, it's too salty. By the way, if you if you do get anchovies on your pizza, whether they put it on or make a mistake, when you take them off, guess what's baked throughout the cheese of the pizza? <laughs> the anchovy smell and flavor. Yeah, the taste. <laughs> Even if you don't like it, you take it off, it's still there. Okay. Uh, who likes pineapple on their pizza? Leave your hands up. Who likes pineapple on their pizza? How many we got here that like pineapple? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. All right. (laughs) How about pepperoni? Who likes pepperoni on their pizza? (laughs) It's like, oh, not everybody. (laughs) Look at that face. You like anchovies, but not pepperoni. Okay, let's say almost all. I wonder, too, if that's kind of a statistical analysis of how it is for everybody, every group. (laughs) And so the reason why I do this is simple. When a person elects something, then something is chosen. Even as you see here, we did a real quick survey with just us here. So out of our group here, three people would choose anchovy, eight people would choose pineapple, and not everybody I was surprised. I would guess that, you know, all of us like pepperoni, but really almost all. So a person reveals their will, similar to how you just elected anchovies or pineapple or not. Right? Who here hates anchovies? (laughs) See, some people hate anchovies. (laughs) Well, there's more people that hate anchovies. By the way, I, I like pineapple, but I don't like it cooked. (laughs) <laughs> so some people like it like that. And if you see it the next day on pizza, it's, there's always that weird acidic ring around it, right? 
my opinion. I don't know. So the Hawaiian style pizza, I don't know about that. <laughs> it's just a name they give it in marketing. Some people like pineapple though. So the problem happens though when people choose something, some feel flattered. Let's say if someone is chosen, someone is elected, someone is selected, and it's you. It's not a thing, it's a person. The problem occurs is some people feel flattered, others make it jealous and feel left out. That becomes an issue, that becomes a problem. And so when it comes to this whole thing of who are the elect, who are the chosen, is it just the elect select, the frozen chosen? Who are these people within scripture? When you study the totality, the whole Bible, you come across this topic, this issue. And throughout the centuries, Christians have been pondering and arguing about who are God's elect, who are these select chosen people. We even have series that are out now called the Chosen, which kind of forces that topic into the forefront. And by the way, the people in that movie or that TV series are not Gentiles predominantly. They're the Jews. So people and Christians argue and discuss about who are God's elect. And Paul actually writes about this here in Romans chapter 11. So this section of scripture helps you and I to solidify the fact, and I'm just going to cut to the chase and tell you, Israel is God's elect, as written about here in Romans chapter 11. So let's get back to this passage. And in our passage at hand, Paul is quoting from a couple passages here. If you're taking notes, I'm going to display it on the screen, and you can also write it down. But one of the passages that we just read, Paul is actually quoting from Isaiah chapter 59. You see it here on the display. It says in Isaiah 59, when you actually read the scriptures, which is good to do, go back to the book and take a look at what is quoted. Paul quotes from Isaiah 59, verse 20, and he's writing to help us understand that Israel is God's elect. God will never cast away his chosen elect people, Israel. Here's what it says. Isaiah 59, verse 20, The Redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, says the Lord, Isaiah 59, verse 20. So this is a prophecy of the Redeemer. Notice the quote. I didn't capitalize the R in Redeemer. It's capitalized. Why? This is a prophecy of the Redeemer or the Messiah who's going to come. So there's a Redeemer that was prophesied who, quote, will come to Zion and those who turn from transgression in Jacob. So this Redeemer... This is speaking of the Messiah to come. This is what Paul is quoting from here in Romans chapter 11. Messiah is going to come to the land and to the people of Israel. Notice this prophecy in Isaiah. It doesn't say the Redeemer will come to the United States in the state of New York, the city of New York City. We know that he's here. We know he's here not just globally, everywhere. We understand from proper theology. But this is not what this prophecy is speaking of. Come to Zion. It's going to come to the land of Israel and to the people of Israel. Predominantly is what this is speaking of. Paul also quotes in the second part here that we open up by reading from Jeremiah 31. I'm going to read this to you so that you and I can better understand that there's going to be a new covenant. Notice it says, and you and I benefit from this new covenant. You and I call this also the New Testament. You and I benefit from this as Gentiles in this new thing that God calls the church. But notice the prophecy that's given. It says here, and I quote from Jeremiah 31, verse 31 and on. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. Notice it says, with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in that in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. So he says again, house of Israel. He's not speaking of Gentiles here. Although we're included, remember, this house, it was the house of Israel, this root This olive tree, it was Israel. We're the wild olive branch, right? That's grafted in to Israel. Verse 33, But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, 
says the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Verse 34 says, No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord. For they all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Now the writer of Hebrews quotes that passage in Hebrews chapter 8. He's saying basically in that book, after seven chapters, to sum it up, he says in chapter 8, Hebrews chapter 8, now the best thing, the biggest thing, the greatest thing I'm saying is that we have such a great high priest. And then he goes on to quote this passage from Jeremiah 31. What is it? It's saying that there's a new covenant that was prophesied in the old covenant time. Not like the old one. What happened in the old one? God's writing rules. All they do is break rules. Kind of like us today, right? And this one, all will know me, God says. In this new covenant time. This also speaks of what's going to happen and you and I benefit from in this new covenant time. The indwelling of God. So God comes to live, dwell, abide, reside within you and I. And you and I can get to know this God. This God who has an only begotten son, Jesus, that when he was birthed to this earth, he wasn't even born as a, you know, if you're talking about ethnicity, not a Japanese, a Jew. The lion of the tribe of what? Of Judah. Okay, And he's going to make this new covenant through him. The old covenant, what was bad about it? There's many things. We study that in depth. We looked at it especially through things like the study of the tabernacle and on Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, where one person, the high priest, goes into one place. What is that place called? The Holy of Holies on that one day called Yom Kippur or the day of atonement. Goes and makes atonement for his family. Comes back out and for himself. Goes back out. Now he's a picture of Messiah Jesus, the great high priest. Makes atonement now for the sins of all the people. Picture of Yeshua, Messiah, our great high priest. And then he comes out. And the people see him like, yay, all right. They had to anxiously, patiently wait and watch for this high priest to come out. Why? Because he's sacrificing for my sins. And what if God didn't accept the sacrifice or what would happen? He'd die, right? It wasn't a great day. Those during the high holy days. So if you study the Jewishness on the calendar annually, there's the, the law of laws, the Sabbath of Sabbaths, the Jews would consider the highest thing, biggest law during the high holy days in the entire Jewish calendar every single year, Yom Kippur, Leviticus 16. Highly encourage you to study that so that you can share with your Jewish friends and also know and love Messiah Jesus more and more of what he did. He had to do all the work that day, just like the high priest at that time. So the people would anxiously wait for him to come out. Why? Because you just sacrificed for my sins. I need to know my sins were, get this, old covenant time, my sins were covered. So that word kofar means to cover. It's literally, yam means day. Yom Kofar or Yom Kippur, literally the day of covering. Guess what happened to your sins in the Old Testament time? They were covered. Were they taken away? Were they eradicated? No, they were covered. Do you know it's there? Yeah. Now, how many of you parents or when you were kids, you play hide and seek, especially when your kids are really little? Hide and seek. And they're hiding under the covers. You see this huge lump. You know it's not a pillow. You know they're there. Mine were my kids. Our kids. Remember that, sweetie? They play hide and seek, they're like under the cover, especially when they're like two or something. Like really little, right? I see you. <laughs> so they're there, this big old lump, kind of like how your sins are. They're there, but they're covered. Now that's old covenant time. Now the writer of Hebrews points this out, picks out this prophecy from Jeremiah 31 and quotes it. What's one of the best things about this new covenant through Yeshua being your great high priest? Your sins are not covered, they are eradicated. In the new covenant time, atonement, at one meant, if you break down that word, atonement has a different connotation. Your sins through Yeshua, Messiah, being your great high priest, as well as your sin sacrifice, were not covered, your sins were eradicated. So it was promised in the Old Testament, only fulfilled by Jesus, Messiah. So these prophecies about the Messiah to come. He was going to make a new covenant. Notice it says, basically with Israel. 
You and I benefit as Gentiles from this. So let's not be arrogant. High-minded, as the Bible says. We might say on the streets today, using just regular language, stuck up. Don't get a big head, right? Don't get stuck up. Don't get a big head. It's about Israel. You and I are grafted in as Gentiles. That's what this chapter is greatly teaching us. So you and I should take note, though, that this obviously points to how anyone, Jew or Gentile, gets saved. It's only through who? Jesus. And only through what he has done. So it's all about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The person, Jesus. He's our great high priest. He's the Messiah. He's our Savior. And through his work, what did he do? He died on the cross for our sins. You and I weren't even there to nail on the nails. While we're still in our sins, Christ Jesus died for us. So whether Jew or Gentile, the point is, salvation is only through Messiah Jesus. So we see that doctrine still there. This doesn't change things in Romans 11. We're just learning. Now, look at this in verse 26, as we read it says, and so all Israel will be saved. Wait a second. And the question is asked sometimes. Does that mean every single person that happens to be Jewish, including there's a lot of Jews in this area, even grew up in California, the, the guys and gals I knew that were Jewish, they were not very Jewish, just ethnically. Does that mean even them? No. Now, where it says all Israel will be saved, it's obviously referring to the end time scenario when, look at what was just mentioned. This is why we want to back up a little bit and read verse 25. When this thing called the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. There's a mystery we learn about. What is that? There's a partial blindness, a spiritual blindness that Israel has, that Jews have. Anybody try to witness to any Jews? Okay. One reason why it's tough for them to receive Yeshua as Messiah is because God puts a blindness on them, on their heart, on the things that they hear, the things that they see. Don't get frustrated. Keep sharing, especially through your actions, love, right? The agape love of God. It's foreign to this world, and it can still be used by the Holy Spirit to minister to them. But don't get discouraged if you share. Why? Because there's a partial blindness. Notice this in verse 25, that blindness has... Or blindness in part has happened to Israel. Notice it says, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So this mystery is that there's a spiritual blindness, partial blindness that Israel has, that Jews have today. Until when? Until, part of that mystery is, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So God has a set number of us Gentiles that will be saved. That's exciting. So in your evangelism, in your praying that God softens hearts, whether you're ministering or evangelizing or you do outreach or, or missions or you go in the streets here, you hand tracks out wherever you go, don't lose heart, be encouraged because there's a last Gentile somewhere on the planet. Maybe he or she's here in New York City. We don't know. But there's a Gentile who, where God has a set number of Gentiles when that number becomes full, then the fullness of Gentiles has come in. And then what happens? God's going to remove this partial blindness from the Jews. And we talked about this a little earlier. Uh, when you look at the flip side of that, it's interesting as well. Share and evangelize to Gentiles, especially right now. Minister also to the Jews. But what might happen when God turns his focus away from the Gentiles, now it goes back to Israel because the partial blindness is gone, it might be that much harder for Gentiles to receive Jesus Christ as Savior for their sins. Think about that. Now, where's that found in the Bible? Well, if you look at just the context of the text, this partial blindness is going to go away. And you fit it, and we, we don't have time to go through it. We'll look at a little bit of uh, end times timeline today. But when that blindness is taken away and God removes his focus away from us Gentiles being saved and now he's going to turn to getting Jews saved, then the question begs, like, what about the Gentiles? Get them saved now. Amen? Preach now. Think about that. Because why? Because maybe then they're going to have a blindness. We don't know. It doesn't say that in the text, but God has a fullness of Gentiles, a set number of Gentiles that will be saved. And then he's going to turn his focus back to the Jews, back to Israel. 
where he's going to focus on them predominantly. We read and study in the book of Revelation. It's not highly mentioning Gentiles getting saved, is it, in Revelation? It predominantly mentions about the Jews. Okay, so obviously this quote, all Gent or all Israel will be saved, is referring to the end time scenario. When the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, where the set number of Gentiles that God wants to be saved is going to be full. That number is going to be full, like a gas tank, going to be full. So when that happens, we believe that the rapture of the church is going to happen sometime after that. We don't know when, but when you study everything that prophetically that hasn't already happened, but still is set up for the end times prophecy scenario, eschatology, as we might say, as we study the study of biblical end time events in the Bible, okay, biblical end time events, one of the next things that has to happen is this fullness of the Gentiles. Also, the rapture of the church. We don't know when those things are going to happen, so don't let anybody give you a date or time. Okay, so the rapture of the church is going to happen sometime after the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. So perhaps when that last Gentile that you're ministering to receives Yeshua as their Messiah, as their Savior, and they're like, forgive me of my sins. I, I receive salvation through your only son, Jesus, who loved me and died on the cross for my sins. Forgive me of my sins. Help me, Lord, to turn from my sins. I repent. Help me to turn to you. Maybe that Gentile gets saved and boom, maybe we go up right then. We don't know. So then what happens after the fullness of the Gentiles has been reached? Then the spiritual blindness that Israel has is going to be taken away. So many Jews that you're now ministering to will at that time likely receive Yeshua then as Messiah. Now how many of you know if you've been ministering to Jews, they totally reject Yeshua as Messiah. Orthodox Jews especially. They'll reject Yeshua as Messiah. Okay. Although it's their scriptures that we study. So don't get, don't lose, lose hope. Don't get frustrated. I, that's me. I'm getting frustrated. I'm like, God, and I pray for, come on, before I go to my dentist. <laughs> Please open them. <laughs> help, help. Really, I, I, I study up and prepare. I go in there. Mr. Sagawa, how's the red heifer? We were talking about the temple and these end time things. And so I got that timeline in my head. I'm wanting to minister and share. I, I did a YouTube video like two years ago. It got like a lot of views on it. And I, I share it with this dentist and like, hey, okay. Wanting to point them to Yeshua being Messiah. So the spiritual blindness that Jews have are going to be taken away. It's going to be taken away. So don't lose heart. Maybe it will be that after we're not here, maybe that blindness goes away, but they remember what you shared. They remember what you said. And if the rapture does happen, then say if, because we don't know the time, and we're no longer here, maybe they'll make that connection because now the Holy Spirit will minister to them. The blindness, the spiritual blindness is gone. Maybe they'll remember that that crazy Gentile keep telling me about Yeshua being Messiah, that I missed it. I think I get it a little better now. And I don't think it's just an intellectual thing. You hear what I'm saying? It's a spiritual blindness that God has given them. Where do you find that? Romans chapter 11. So then... This blindness will be taken away of Israel, of the Jews. And then God will once again turn his focus towards saving Jews. So why does God do that? Why did he choose them? Why did he elect them? I don't know. <laughs> it's what he chose. You know, I, I was thinking about what to do this morning for like an illustration. I'm like, well, I don't want to use politics. <laughs> it cause a fight in the room. <laughs> If I say, who, who selects Trump? Who selects Biden? Who selects Obama? I don't want you to throw stuff at me. Why is it that we choose one and not choose another? That's just your will being executed, exercise. It's kind of how it is with God. So why did he choose Israel? He just chose Israel. That's his choice. Why did he not cho choose the Gentiles? That was just his choice to select and not select. Okay? So as a nation we're talking about with the Jews. So once God turns his focus towards saving Jews, then each Jew currently alive at that time, just like you and I, has to make their own personal, individual decision to receive Yeshua, or Jesus, as their Messiah and their Savior and not turn to Torah as how I'm going to be declared righteous in God's eyes. That's a problem with Jews today in Judaism. And again, we want to study and look at the temple. And I got a little prophecy update, if I can fit this in in a little bit. Because the Jews today, they have a problem. A law-abiding Jew. Don't believe any Jew that says, oh, I'm trying to live according to Torah. 
Or I, I live, you, you have people today even say, I live according to the Ten Commandments. No, you don't. You break all ten of them. You just broke one. You're lying. <laughs> we all do, right? And Paul even wrote in the New Testament that the Torah, the law, was my schoolmaster to lead me to who? To Messiah, Jesus, to Christ. Because I can't fulfill it. Neither can the Jews. And the reason why I wanted to study in Torah, it's like, what is the... the what, what kind of nails the nail in the coffin for the Jews? I wanted to, like, I studied and part of what God was doing with my heart. Studying things like the tabernacle, studying Torah, those first five books of the Bible. I wanted to see, how can I evangelize? <laughs> you know, what, what's the argument? Kind of like a lawyer. And I look at it, it's like I had the wrong motive, but God did teach me a lot of scripture in that time. And you end up studying the biggest thing on the Jewish calendar called Yom Kippur. Every year it occurs, around September or so in our calendar. Why is that? Why do you study that? Because to the Jew or Gentile or anybody that says, I'm a good person or I, I live according to Torah. No, you don't. I can lead them right in their Bible. They have the same books, the Jews, the, out of Torah, the book of Leviticus, chapter 16. They're commanded to send a high priest into the temple. And what do they give you? Excuse. God doesn't give them a loophole or using excuses in the law. They're commanded. No excuse. So how do the Jews today fulfill Torah, especially Yom Kippur, the biggest law? They can't. They can't. I'm telling you, it's like of the studying that I've done. I know a little bit. They can't. So what do they need to do? Give in. Why don't they? <laughs> Give and receive Yeshua as Messiah, as Savior. Why don't they? There's a partial blindness, a spiritual blindness that they have. Okay. So don't lose heart. Have pity on them. Have mercy on them. And don't be high-minded or haughty. Don't get stuck up or big-headed, we might say today, as Paul gets in the Romans chapter 11. Why is it that we get saved as Gentiles and they don't? Although it's their Messiah, their scriptures, their temple, everything's about them, their language. There's a spiritual blindness, a partial blindness that Israel has until the fullness of the Gentiles that has come in. That's Romans 11 verse 25. So each Jew currently alive at that time when the spiritual blindness is taken away just like you and I, must receive Yeshua as their Messiah, as their Savior for their sins. Not turning to Torah, saying, this is how I'm righteous, this is what's going to take away my sins. It cannot be my actions or me as a person. It's only the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Amen? Remember that, the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Not me as a person, not them because they're Jewish, the person of Jesus. And who is he? Even according to the book of Hebrews, who points that out greatly, the person and the work of Jesus. He's our great high priest. Not just a priest, not just a high priest, our great high priest. And what did he do? He died on the cross for our sins. All of our sins. And said, it is finished. In Espanol, was it? Es todo? <laughs> es todo! <laughs> what, what would you say? Oh, okay. I can't say that. I'll let you say that. What she said. <laughs> there are different ways to say it. <laughs> it's finished. Okay, so each Jew has to, at that time, believe and receive, just like you and I. Because that gets asked as, as a question, right? How do Gentile or how do Jews get saved? Because it says all of us will be saved. I looked, I even Googled for that, and I looked up a couple of websites and how others, apologists, even on the Reform side, will say, and it's like, wow, there's a lot of really bad, like false doctrine out there. When you look at the context of what's going on here, look at the study of the chapters and the entire book as a whole, they have to receive Yeshua as their Messiah. Just like we received this, their Messiah, right? We received him. And they have to believe that he paid the price, the penalty, dying on the cross as their sin sacrifice. The only way for them to be declared righteous in God's eyes not according to their works. That's what we learned. I mean, that's like chapters ago. We learned that greatly through the book of Romans. All right. So I'm going to have to continue on. We don't have time. So verse 28, continuing on. Notice it says here, concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, there's that word again, concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. The election. Hey, November, every four years or so, we have an election here in the United States. It's a similar thing. 
you'll go to the polls, you elect during election day, you even legally are allowed to take time off of work. How many of you guys know that? Okay, some of you know that. <laughs> it's election day. What do you do? You exercise your free will to do what? To vote. So here again we have this word election. Well, you and I must take notice of the context of who this term election is referring to in this chapter. This term election is not referring to personal individual salvation. It's referring to the nation of what? Israel. Okay? Uh, know that, know that, know that. Because this is also one of those verses that people will cherry pick and take the context out of the text. And they'll quote this. See, I'm part of the election. And there are Gentiles saying this. Almost always it's a Gentile. I have yet to meet real Jews that are born again, spirit-filled, that are of the Reformed faith. They just won't. Why? Because Reformed theology is pretty much synonymous with replacement theology. Where a lot of Gentiles in the Christian church, who, yes, sir, are brethren, who are saved, that many of those in replacement theology will believe like these scriptures, these especially Romans chapter 9, 10, 11, they'll take it out of context. They won't study the entirety of it. They'll look at Romans 9, 10, 11. They won't believe this. Pointing to Israel as a nation, they'll just look at it and quote it, cherry-picking verses, out, take the text out of the context, and telling you and forcing themselves and others to believe that it's pointing to us Gentiles being chosen, elected, selected by God. And that's not so. That's just Let's just stick with the Bible. Okay, stick with the scriptures. So Israel is God's elect. This term election here is not speaking of a personal individual salvation. You can get that from other texts, other scriptures, but not this one. This is speaking of, notice again, concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. The context is Israel. But concerning the election, they, speaking of Israel, are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Uh, so when we talk about the elect, it's important to understand what's going on here. And I'm going to only briefly cover this because of our lack of time. So when you're studying this and we look at, we're talking about the end times prophecy, the end times scenario. This is why in our earlier in our service meeting time, uh, 10 o'clock, we, we went through uh, like a, a survey of Revelation, looking at some of the end times prophecies that are there, because we're we're looking at these things greatly of end times prophecy, eschatology. Matthew 24, when you're studying this, this is also another passage that many people take out of context. Matthew 24, Jesus is answering questions from his Jewish followers, the disciples. And they're asking him, because Jesus just said, hey, the temple buildings are wowing at, I'm paraphrasing the story, not one stone will be left upon another. Wait a second. Whoa. What's the sign of your coming and at the end of the age? They're asking him an end times question. So what does Jesus do with his disciples, his followers? He's answering their question. Not like with the Pharisees and Sadducees and Herodians and others, where he answers many times their question with a question. He's answering their question. And thus, especially if you read in your red letter Bible, it's all read there, Matthew 24. So we're on Jewish ground. He's not referring to the Gentile church. And we won't get into the, the breadth of it and the length of it, but regarding end times prophecies, Matthew 24, verse 29, here's what it says when Jesus is answering a question about the end times and about what's called, you and I know today as the Great Tribulation. It says in verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Okay. He's talking about the great tribulation. Verse 30, then the sign of the son of man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. The son of man, who is that? Jesus, he's speaking about himself. Notice in verse 31, and I colored this, color-coded it in verse 31, and he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his, notice he uses this term again, his elect, from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Okay, the famous Matthew 24, verse 31 passage. So some would say, see, when Jesus comes to rapture his church, it's going to be after the Great Tribulation, Matthew 24, verse 31. Why? Because they're going to gather together his elect. Anybody hear of that? Okay, that's actually common. People will refer to that. 
But again, they're cherry-picking verses, taking the text out of its context. Who are the elect, especially as we look at Romans chapter 11 here of the service uh, today? The elect, this refers to Israel. As you and I can see here in Romans 11, as well as the Jewishness of Matthew 24, because Jesus says about this time, this end-time scenario, speaking to the Jews, pray, even that the abomination of desolation doesn't happen i'm going to just refer you to this sorry that i'm not i don't have time to go through the depth and detail but there's an end time seven year period as prophesied in daniel chapter 9 verse 27 you can look it up later on it has not happened yet in the middle of that seven year period this red vertical line what is that event called the abomination of desolation the one that some call the antichrist is going to go into the jewish temple that temple is not yet here. He's going to declare himself as God and to be worshipped as God. So Jesus referring to that time, the abomination of desolation, as prophesied by the prophet Daniel, you find that again in Matthew 24, verse 15, Matthew who writes that book, he says, he puts in aside a parenthetical statement, Matthew 24, verse 15, he who reads, let him understand. Go back to the book of Daniel and take a look. Okay? And you get this seven-year timeline. And Daniel tells us, it's Daniel 9 verse 27, in the middle of the week or three and a half years into it, there's going to be this thing called the abomination of desolation. And the one called Antichrist is going to go into the temple, declare himself as God and to be worshipped as God. And then what does Jesus say in Matthew 24 when that happens? He's telling the Jews, flee, run, pray that it doesn't happen on the Sabbath. That's why you can say Matthew 24, you see the Jewishness of it. Do us Gentiles care about if it happens on Saturday or not? Like, oh, I'm watching ESPN that day, bro. We're not going to care about it. Why would he say pray that doesn't happen on the Sabbath, on Shabbat? Because the Jews will not run. They're not going to flee. They're going to be walking. And they got to, even some are so legalistic, they got a set amount of space that you can walk or travel in. You don't travel on that day. Pray doesn't happen on the Sabbath. So Matthew 24, Jesus is speaking to the Jews about the Jews that when this time happens, and let me ask you guys this now that we're on this, there's going to be a coming temple, a physical temple in the city of what? Jerusalem. And where must the, the only place where the Jewish temple can be built? What is that called? The Temple Mount. Okay, we looked at that in 2 Samuel 24, that what used to be the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. It was bought by King David. So the purchase receipt is there. I love that. Israel has claim to that. They have the receipt. The only place where the Jews can build their temple. How do we know that there's a coming future temple? Well, Scripture declares it. But also that there's going to be a coming one who's going to break this seven-year peace treaty, if you want to call it, or this covenant with the many, with Israel. He's going to go into the temple, declare himself as God, and to be worshipped as God. You can read about that in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, I believe it is. And Jesus says in Matthew 24, when you see that happen, Jews, run, flee. Why? Because the Jews are going to be hunted and killed. You can read about that predominantly in Revelation 6 through 18. Okay, so God's going to turn his focus away from the Gentiles and it's the spiritual blindness is going to be taken away from Israel. He's going to focus then as saving his chosen, his elect people. Who is that? The Jews. Okay. So what happens to Gentiles during the end times period? I don't know. It's like tough to think that, that many of them will be saved. So again, the impetus, the motivation to pray for, to do evangelism, missions, outreach, whether here or at home or at work, or wherever God sends you around the globe, do it now. Do it now. We don't know how much time we have left. And I want to share something with you, which is kind of crazy. And, and again, forgive me, I don't have time to go through this. This is just an overview of the book of Revelation. In the yellow here, you got Revelation chapter 1, that's the introduction. Chapter 2 and 3, the letter to the seven churches. So Revelation is predominantly written to those seven churches. And then we believe what will happen um, after that time. And again, I don't have time to go through this in depth and detail. We went through it a little earlier in the service meeting today. We believe the rapture is going to happen sometime after that, like Revelation 4 verse 1. God tells John, come up here. Picture of the, the rapture. And you got the scene in heaven. That's chapters 4 and 5. And then chapter 6 through 18, the belly of the book, the bulk of Revelation, is a great tribulation. Okay? 
Don't let anybody tell you Revelation is hard. It's not. It's pretty much linear for the most part. 6 through 18 is the great tribulation. That's the last three and a half years where Jesus says at the time of the abomination of desolation, when the Antichrist, if you want to call him that, goes into the temple, declares himself to be God and to be worshipped as God, the Jews will receive a Messiah in the end times. Unfortunately, it's going to be a false Messiah. Okay? That's why we've got to minister to them and share with them. They're going to realize that they received a false Messiah. And what's going to happen? Jesus says in Matthew 24, flee. Okay, run. Why? They're going to kill you, he's telling the Jews. Imagine how sad that is. And that's Revelation 6 through 18. And then chapter 19, the second coming of Christ. Who comes back with Christ out of heaven? Us. Us, right? The body of Christ, assembled in heaven, Jew and Gentile, one in Messiah. And then chapter 20 through 22. That's the, the end of time there. So, question for you guys. We're going to have to close here in just a bit and we'll partake of communion. But what's the one item that the Jews need in order to rebuild and use the temple? The red heifer. So I got a little prophecy update. Around 12 days ago, this is fresh, about 12 days ago, and this was not big news. I want to share this with you, something I kind of dug up. like, wow, this is interesting. So the Temple Institute, they're in Jerusalem. They're the leading proponent of wanting to rebuild the temple. The Temple Institute gave a very brief update. I quoted them on this, on the five red heifer candidates that they have. Some of you guys know in this church, we study this. On Numbers 19, the red heifer is needed. Who here remembers in John chapter 2, what was the very first miracle of Jesus? He turned water into wine. What kind of water? The water for purification. The red heifer water. So when you see John's gospel, there's a Jewishness there that we often miss as Gentiles. It's not, I hear, I, I hate hearing this. Oh, Jesus loves weddings. He loves parties. That's why he loves alcohol. I used to be a wino. Say, hey, Jesus loves wine. <laughs> don't, don't push me. I used to work in a nightclub. Like, I get that conviction. I said, get off my back. This is my way to tell Christians. It wasn't, it didn't have anything to do with wine. It didn't have to do with Jesus loves weddings or Jesus loves parties. John chapter 2, the, the first miracle. He's giving a signal, a Jewish signal to the Jews. You're no longer going to need this water for purification, the red heifer water. So after the party, everybody wakes up, they're all drunk and all oh, slobbering on themselves. i got to purify myself. Where is that water for purification? What are you talking about? It's all used. You drank it last night. Jesus turned it into wine. What? They're way up north in Galilee. It was in Cana of Galilee, way up north. Where do they have to go to get this red heifer water? They have to travel all the way south, miles, to get to the temple area that the priests would take a red heifer, they would slaughter it, they would burn the entire thing, collect the ashes, and they would be able to make this water for purification. So Jesus taking that red heifer water, turning that into wine, it had nothing to do with weddings or parties or alcohol. It's a signal to say, you no longer have to use this for your purification. Why? Messiah is here. That's why it was the first miracle. And that's why he used that. So when he's studying the red heifer, it's his huge implications. So 12 days ago, the Temple Institute, they gave a really brief update. I, I got to continue on. <laughs> I'm out of time here. On the red heifer candidates. You guys know, and some of you remember, uh, sometime last year I gave an update that they, they gave an update, I'm just reporting to you. Uh, they received five red heifer candidates. Anybody remember what state it was? From Texas. They partnered with some crazy guys out in Texas, United States, that flew five red heifers, perfect red heifers. They had no non-red hairs. And let me just read this quote. As you recall, we brought with partners, we brought in five red heifers just under a year ago. This, this is 12 days ago, by the way, this guy said this. Five red heifers just under a year ago into the land of Israel. They came through Ben-Gurion Airport, that's in Israel, from Texas. And they are currently enjoying a very nice life, I underline life, here in Israel, in an undeclosed location. And we are keeping our eyes on them, of course, to continue to hopefully maintain that they determine whether they could still fulfill all of their requirements. Because even though at the time that they arrived in Israel, they all were pure red as in following meticulous inspections, they had no non-red hairs. But that is often the case with a young red heifer. And almost as often, the case is 
that at some point before they are eligible to be slaughtered and burned and turned into ashes, they developed hairs that aren't red, which makes them no longer viable as candidates for the red heifer. They're no longer kosher at that time. That's actually happened. As you guys hear me report throughout the years, hey, they got some candidates. Last time before this was like, they had two red heifer candidates, and that would happen before they matured and could be slaughtered and used. And God knows the timeline. They had a couple of hairs that weren't red, so they're disqualified, no longer candidates. Couldn't use them. So this batch came to Israel a year ago. Uh, so we're keeping our eyes on them. I have no new dramatic announcements to make, simply that we will keep you posted if there are any dramatic developments. Sometimes no drama is best. That was quoted on June 20th, uh, 2023. It's a red heifer update from, again, the Temple Institute. So they obviously can't give out more information. I'm not going to tell Iran and their enemies where they're at. Imagine snipers going, Pooh, they got four now! Because <laughs> that's what Israel's enemies would want to do. But notice what I quote here that this representative said. They are currently enjoying a very nice life. So that tells you they're alive and all five red heifer, they're perfect red heifer candidates. All five of them, as of this statement 12 days ago, are still candidates. And there's speculation, so they're still kosher. There's speculation though, uh, because they're about a year old, I believe, when last year they came to Israel. So this tells us they're about two years old now. And according to some of the sages that they believe in and try to follow, if my memory is correct, that these red heifers have to be about the age of three in order to be slaughtered and burned and turned into ashes to use for the temple. So they need the ashes of the red heifer. They take a red heifer. They already know they're going to slaughter it on the Mount of Olives. And... And they, I believe they even know the exact site they want to use. They just need a red heifer. Why do they need the red heifer? They're going to slaughter it. They burn it. And they take the ashes. They sprinkle it with water. Mix it with water. They create the red heifer water. The water for purification. That's in Numbers 19. So that they can consecrate the priests. Because the priests are what? They're born in sin. They can consecrate the priests over to be used to sacrifice and give offerings. And they can consecrate over the temple. They can consecrate over the temple furnishings. So the the link right now that they need, because they already have the furniture implements, they need to rebuild the temple, but they need a red heifer. So what does this tell us prophetically? A couple of things. One is that on the timeline, on our calendar, they have five and God's in control. They believe that the next one, which is going to be the 10th red heifer, they believe, the sages of old, they believe that this, Maimonides is actually an old Jewish rabbi, a sage of old. They believe the next red heifer, the 10th red heifer, and we're talking 10 from the time of Moses, Moshe, in Exodus, till now. They've cataloged, there's nine. The 10th, they believe, will be ushered in and maybe even sacrificed by who? By Messiah himself. And we're not talking about Yeshua. So what's interesting, guys, is this timeline, that they have five perfect red heifer candidates right now. If it is correct that they only have to wait till they're three years old and then inspected by rabbis to make sure they're kosher, they could be used, every hair has to remain red, they may only have like a year on our calendar. That's exciting to me. I'm not saying, hey, pray for it and let's help them. I'm saying when you look at the other scriptures in the timeline, we don't have much time, do we? And if they got five, this is the closest they've ever been by far to being able to rebuild a temple. They could build a temple. They could have a priesthood. They, they're already trained up priests, but they can't use any of it. Why? Because these priests are sinners. They can't imagine sending them into a place where they think God's going to just strike them down dead. Who, who wants to volunteer for that as a priest? Nobody. So they can't use it. They need the red heifer water, the water for purification. Okay, so if my memory's correct, they may be able to consecrate the temple, the furnishings, and the Jewish priesthood at around the age of three for these red heifers. Just something interesting to note. I'm not saying in a year they're going to rebuild the temple. I'm not saying in a year the Messiah is going to be, their Messiah that they'll receive is going to be announced. And I'm not saying that a year from now is going to be the rapture. I don't know. But I'm reporting to you the facts of what's going on when you marry them with the Bible on our calendar, our timeline. It's all pointing to the fact that we don't have time left. So continue to pray for souls to be saved. Amen? Continue to evangelize. Continue to get 
zealous for God and the things of God. And then going back here, verse 28, concerning the gospel, as he says here, they are enemies for your sake. That speaks of Israel. But concerning the election, they, speaking of Israel, are beloved for the sake of the fathers. And verse 29, and we close. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Now many of us, we might use this and say, the spiritual gifts and the calling of God. You could certainly say that as a principle, but that's not what this is saying. Again, the context of this text, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. This speaks of who? Israel. And we're talking about God electing, just like some of you chose anchovies. And I'd say, oh, not me. (laughs) That's my choice. So God chose, he elected Israel. Okay, so the context is not speaking about spiritual gifts and God's calling upon our lives. The context of this whole chapter speaks of the nation of Israel. So in this scripture, God's telling you and I that the special things that God had chosen and elected Israel for, God will not change. They're irrevocable. Make sense? So again, we looked at these things. We only slowly go through this. Pray for us. Pray for me. But I want to make sure that we can, God willing, hopefully clarify some of these things for us. This speaks about Israel. God chose them. They're his chosen people. He elected them. And it's irrevocable. He's not going to change his mind. I don't care how much we might pray that we would be selected as our nation. The United States of America is not in the Bible prophetically, by the way. Anyhow, that's it. Let's go ahead and stand, if we can, please. I'm going to close this in a word of prayer. We went way over our time. Especially we're going to have communion here. Those that want to partake, but let's close in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your choice of Israel. We thank you, Lord, that your word stands forever. As you say in Isaiah 40, verse 8. We thank you that your promises, whether to Israel or to us, even as Gentiles, Your promises still stand. And we like the fact that you don't change your mind about the Jews, about Israel. They're irrevocable. That means also the rest of your promises that do apply to us for our individual personal salvation, our sanctification. That means they also apply to us, God. These promises that you have given even to us. We thank you for that, Lord. But God... We ask that you would continue to open up our understanding of your holy word, especially as we study the end times prophecies, God. And Lord, whoever that last Gentile is that will get saved, only you know, but we pray that you would get us on fire to evangelize. Help us to keep reaching out. Help us to keep praying for others to be saved and to have us keep evangelizing to both Jews and Gentiles. But help us to do it with your power, your strength, for your glory. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.